This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today I am talking about the Stephen King book and movie, The Shining. This is the third installment in my Halloween spooky content episodes for the month of October, and building upon last week's episode, which was about Gerald's game, I'm tackling another Stephen King piece of work that really pulls upon more realistic issues as part of the horror, right? In Gerald's game, part of the horror was a woman having a recovered memory about abuse. The Shining really focuses on alcoholism or alcohol use disorder and domestic violence as kind of part of the horror of the story. This is also a good reminder of the content warning for this issue. I will be talking about alcohol use issues, uh, interpersonal violence or domestic violence, and I'm also going to talk about Shelley Duvall's experience uh, as an actress in the film, which involves quite a bit of abusive behavior. So just a heads up that those are the topics being covered in the episode. I'm going to discuss both the film and the, the book at the same time like I did with Gerald's Game because I think there are things that are similar and different between the stories that really add to our understanding of the psychological concepts. And I will take this opportunity to say that I really, 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 really <laughs> love the book version. I think it's one of Stephen King's best pieces of work. It was probably one of the first books that actually scared me. I could not go into my bathroom for weeks after I read The Shining, mostly because of the scene with the woman in the bathtub. I just was like, I will not be seeing anyone in my bathtub. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you've only seen the movie version, I highly recommend reading the book. Um, and this is also a good time to note that Stephen King himself is not a big fan of the Kubrick movie adaptation. There was a later miniseries adaptation, which I haven't seen, that he was a lot more involved in. And he's been pretty open about his criticisms of The Shining, the Kubrick version. That being said, I'm going to give a real quick intro summary of the story, and then we're going to dive into the psychological concepts. So The Shining follows the Torrance family, which features Jack Torrance, his wife Wendy, and their son Danny. The story, whether it's the book or the movie, starts with Jack Torrance getting a job as the winter caretaker of the Outlook Hotel which means he and his family will be living at this hotel through the winter season, isolated and unable to leave. Once the family settles into the hotel and the rest of the staff has left, essentially weird stuff starts happening. Ghosts start showing up and everyone in the family is affected. Jack begins to really fall apart, relapses into alcohol use, and essentially kickstarts a plan to kill his family, just like the previous caretaker had killed his family. 
Uh, meanwhile, Danny, the son, uses his psychic powers to call for help from the hotel chef who has left for the season. And Wendy tries to keep her husband at bay as his behavior gets scarier and scarier. In both versions, it culminates in a very destructive finale with either Jack chasing his family through the hedge maze and freezing to death in the movie after he kills the chef, or the book ends with the boiler of the hotel exploding and killing Jack while his family and the chef flee. Either way, Jack tries to kill everyone and ultimately ends up dying himself, regardless of which version you're talking about. There is so much to talk about in this story from like a mental health perspective, from like a critique perspective, and I think there's definitely going to be things that I leave out in this episode just so that it's not eight hours long, but I do want to acknowledge that I think The Shining has long been a movie that people have overanalyzed and searched for symbols and hidden messages in. One thing that I do recommend watching, it's called Room 237. It's a documentary about all of the different, essentially, conspiracy theories about the movie version of The Shining. The theories about the movie range from Stanley Kubrick was secretly confessing to being part of the moon landing, of like faking the moon landing in the film, to the movie is actually an allegory for the genocide of the Native Americans. It's an allegory for the Holocaust. Like, people really get into it and really believe that Kubrick was attempting to communicate some sort of hidden message through through this movie. In that regard, I do want to give a shout out to a blog post that I was reading that was wondering if Jack Torrance represents schizophrenia. They argued that Jack experiences hallucinations, disorganized thoughts and speech, and social withdrawal, which are all symptoms of schizophrenia. Uh, and I did like that the blog pointed out that it can be dangerous to portray a severe mental illness like schizophrenia as associated with the violence uh, in the film, which I, I do agree with that point that often people living with severe mental illnesses are more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators. And so associating those symptoms with the kind of events that take place in the movie can be dangerous to the public perception of these types of mental health disorders. However, I do disagree that Jack would be a character living with schizophrenia. I think that the age of the onset of the symptoms is far too old. We typically would see the onset of symptoms in like the early 20s, maybe late 20s. Jack's too old. It's more likely that there is an environmental stimulus for his hallucinations, either if you believe that because the overlook is haunted and has like actual ghosts in it, or because it's most likely that this hotel has something like nasty in the walls, like mold um, that is affecting everyone who lives there. And it's also too brief of a symptom onset. We're looking for for a full diagnosis of schizophrenia. You want uh, one month of at least two of the symptoms happening at the same time. Now, we do know that the Torrance family is in the hotel from October 31st until December 2nd. However, it's unclear from the like timeline when Jack starts to experience the kind of like deterioration of his sense of reality. So it could be possible that he's having symptoms for less than one month, which would put him into either a category of brief psychotic disorder or schizophreniform disorder which are like, I guess if we're talking about schizophrenia as like a spectrum disorder, they're kind of like on the lighter end of the spectrum. 
Now, as the mantra of this podcast is, I don't diagnose anyone, even characters in books, because we don't diagnose people we don't work with. But I did want to engage with this a little bit because of this uh, blog post that I was reading. And I think it's important to kind of also provide people with an understanding that there are different types of disorders in the DSM that deal with like psychotic symptoms and that having a hallucination does not immediately mean you meet criteria for something like schizophrenia and that we do have other types of disorders to better explain either like the severity of symptoms or the timeline of symptoms. And so Jack just, he probably does not fit into the category for like a full diagnosis of schizophrenia. So just something to to kind of keep in mind. Okay, so with all that being said and the understanding that The Shining is a piece of work that many people have looked for hidden meaning from, let's go ahead and take a look at some of the hidden meaning. So the two biggest issues that I want to talk about are alcohol use and domestic violence. I'm going to start with alcohol use because I think it informs the the domestic violence and is often a theme in Stephen King's work as he is someone who struggles with substance use issues. I think it's also interesting that Mike Flanagan adapts a lot of Stephen King's work as Flanagan has also been pretty open about being in recovery as well. So these are stories that I think can often speak to people who are in recovery or speaks to this idea of the the role that like substance use can play in a person's life. Granted, because they are like horror films and movies, the substance use tends to play a more negative role. But I think that just means that this is a great opportunity to do some like education about alcohol and substance use disorders. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so one of the things that comes up in The Shining is that Jack is actually sober at the beginning of the story. He has a history of drinking and one of the incidents in which he's decided to stop drinking is that while he was under the influence of alcohol, his son Danny made a mess of his like papers in his office and Jack gets very upset and dislocates his son's shoulder by trying to like pull him away from the pile of papers. This incident is shocking to the family and is one of the reasons why Jack, one, wants to stop drinking and two, wants to take this job at the Overlook so that he can kind of get away and get some time to reset with his family. In the book version, we also learn that Jack had beaten up a student. He was an English teacher at a like prep school and had caught a student trying to slash his tires and had beaten the kid up very badly. So we know that Jack has anger issues and that his alcohol use contributes to his inability to control his anger. There is extensive research in the field of substance use treatment and mental health that demonstrates there is a relationship between alcohol use and aggressive behavior. A question that remains in the field is how strong is that relationship? We know the relationship exists, but is it a very strong, almost one-to-one relationship or is it a, a little bit of a weaker relationship? One of the theories that seeks to kind of explain how the relationship between alcohol and aggression exists is called the alcohol myopia theory. Now, myopia means like extreme nearsightedness. And this theory is essentially about the way that alcohol limits our ability to pay attention to a larger context when we are under the influence. The theory specifically says that when someone has been drinking alcohol, it reduces our ability to attention, bring our attention to a wider focus. 
It restricts our ability to perceive cues, especially from other people and the environment, and reduces our ability to process meaning from the information that does make it through. So essentially, when we've been drinking, it's like we have blinders on, so we're really only seeing what's in front of us. We can't focus our attention uh, outside of that very narrow window. The cues that may be coming from outside of that window are not getting through, and the cues that do get in through the little tunnel we're looking for, uh, we may not be able to process them in the way that we would when we're sober. So if we use the example of Jack and his son, he is under the influence. So when he sees Danny making a mess in his office, he's only focused on the situation right in front of him. So he may not be able to uh, direct his attention to the rest of the house where Wendy may be. He is going to be only focused on Danny in this room making this mess. And he's not going to be able to process the information he's getting about Danny to maybe say, huh, if I step back and look at this, why might my son be in my office making a mess? Perhaps he was playing and this is an accident. Maybe he was looking for something and I wasn't there to help him. But instead, Jack interprets it as like bad behavior and gets upset and thinks that his son is doing this on purpose to mess up his stuff. And this is why I say that the domestic violence and the um, alcohol use are tied, is that I don't think Jack would have interpreted this incident with Danny if he had not been under the influence as like a, a personal attack to him. He may have, as a sober parent, been able to say, this is an accident, I'm frustrated that it happened, but I'm going to handle this in a different way and may have been able to like hear his wife if she came into the room or called him from another room to say like slow down calm down right like he would have been able to take in more of that attention if he had not been drinking this theory the alcohol myopia theory may also explain why we are not always aggressive when we're drinking because if that attentional focus is on non-aggressive cues then people are less likely to be aggressive really it's just the alcohol is narrowing or limiting the ability of attention that we have to focus on multiple cues at the same time, which can make us kind of like really narrow in on a conflict if it's in front of us or narrow in on something else that's in front of us if, if we're, you know, not getting the aggressive cues. So this event where Jack hurts his son and potentially hurts a student at his school, these happen before the story starts. So when we meet Jack, he has stopped using alcohol. We are under the impression from the information we get in the story that he was quite a heavy drinker. And so he's, and he's pretty much like quit cold turkey. Um, I don't recall if it tells us how long he has been sober, but I don't think it's been more than a few months. Regardless, he's within the first year of attempting to be sober. And I bring that up because I think a statistic that can be really helpful when talking about substance use issues is that for people who are in their first year of sobriety from alcohol, about one third of those people are going to have a relapse in that first year. I think this is important to talk about because it highlights how normal it can be to have a relapse in the first year, particularly if your goal is abstinence only, which means no drinking ever again. Having a relapse in that first year means that you're, you've got a, you know, a third of the community of recovering people going through the same experience as you. As people get through the first year of sobriety, those relapse rates start to go down pretty drastically. By the time we get to three to five years of sobriety, only about 9% of people are likely to relapse. 
And our understanding is that the longer you go without a relapse, the likelier you are to be more successful at maintaining sobriety. So Jack is in a vulnerable position. He's within his first year of attempting to stop drinking. So there's a possibility that he could have a relapse. And I find in my work with people who want to work on substance use disorders that there is a lot of shame and stress around particularly the first relapse, especially if the type of substance use language they're used to is more of a 12-step model. And I hinted at this before, and I'm, I think, going to keep dancing around this, like, AA topic. Um, but, like, a lot of our language in current culture around substance use disorder is that, like, it's a disease, so you have to be, like, fighting this disease within yourself at all times. And if you ever let your guard down, then that means that the disease has won. That's just like kind of the the narrative that comes out of like 12-step programs. I think that sets people up to relapse even more when it's this idea that there's like an a other entity within yourself that's in, responsible for the drinking and that this entity requires like constant vigilance and battle. I think that just really sets people up to fail because... It's, first of all, a lot of pressure to put on yourself to, like, battle this, like, amorphous thing that apparently lives inside of you. And I think removes the ability to have conversations about the underlying reasons for substance use, which differ from person to person, but can be things like self-medicating for mental health issues, um, coping skills you learned uh, through your family dynamics, right? especially if you come from a family where people have long used substances in a way that has not been healthy for themselves and other psychological issues, right? That may lead to maladaptive substance use, but those conversations can't happen when you have this like disease model mindset where the only thing that contributes to alcohol use or alcoholism is this disease that lives inside of you. And we all have the same disease. I don't think that that is helpful to most people because one, if it was a disease, then why don't we just have a medicine for it? Right? Why don't we just have a vaccine for it and get rid of it? Uh, and if it was the same for everyone, then why doesn't one method of treatment work for everyone? We know that AA doesn't work for everyone. They have pretty low efficacy rates. We know that, uh, you know, in general mental health treatments, not every modality works for every person. So why do we pretend that substance use is different, <laughs> that it it's the exception to the rule where there's one way to do treatment and that even though it's a disease, we can't take medication for it. Now, to be clear, there are medications that are very uh, useful for people dealing with substance use issues. There are medications, particularly for alcohol use, that either reduce cravings or that generate a kind of like negative reaction to alcohol to reduce the likelihood of using it again. I think these medications are fantastic. I think they can be an excellent way for treatment. They should definitely be talked to about with a medical doctor or a prescriber who can talk to you about those if that is a method that you want to go down. Same thing for like opioid use disorders. I was just in a presentation about methamphetamine use disorders that there is a uh, potential trials for a medication that can help reduce cravings for methamphetamine. The world of medication medication assisted treatment is large and ready to be explored. <laughs> However, those medications are often like frowned upon in the 12-step community 
and you're looked at as like continuing to be an addict because you're using a substance still. I think for someone like Jack, who really wants to stop drinking right away because he has gotten into some very violent situations while under the effects of alcohol, I think a medication consult would be more than appropriate because he's looking for immediate help to stop the behaviors that are affecting his life and he can get help with processing why he ended up in this place while he's getting medication to maybe stop the cravings to drink again so that he doesn't endanger himself or his family in the meantime. What I don't think that's helpful for someone like Jack is going to a place where you are isolated without any social support or treatment options for months at a time, which unfortunately is what happens in The Shining. And I think that this refers to, I think, other like mental health issues more broadly, but trying to like white knuckle your way through something like addiction or, you know, mental health issues is, you know, I understand it. It's admirable that people think that this is the way to do it and they want to, you know, ab- abruptly stop behaviors and, and try to do things differently. But I think this idea that we, if we just like, not, you know, bear down and get through it builds a lot of stigma around people that need extra support to get through like an alcohol use disorder. There's absolutely no shame in needing something like counseling or medication to manage these issues. No shame at all. I'm going to be the first person that's like, yes, go for it. Woohoo. <laughs> And I think that there are some people who can do the cold turkey thing. There's just some personalities and brain types that they're able to wake up one day and say, I'm never going to drink or use drugs ever again. And then they're sober for the rest of their lives. And those people, if we could bottle that brain juice and (laughs) sell it, I think we could really (laughs) have a a business here. But not everyone is like, I think the majority of us are not like that. And so... One thing that I would say to Jack, if Jack was <laughs> a real person, is like, you don't have to do it this way. That I understand the urgency and the need for you to like want to immediately change. Here are some other options to go about that. And doing it by yourself is not the the only path, right? There are other paths for which you can deal with your alcohol use and your anger issues, quite frankly. In addition to kind of talking about sobriety, I also wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about delirium tremens or alcohol withdrawal delirium, which is something that can happen if you quit drinking right away after being someone who's who's drank alcohol quite heavily. And I, I'm kind of shoehorning this in because we know that Jack is sober when he gets to the hotel, but he does relapse and starts drinking again. So I think that it is possible that some of his like falling apart that happens toward the later half of the movie could be potentially ex- explained by delirium tremens, um, especially because he starts drinking ghost alcohol and then there's like no alcohol left in the actual hotel. So I know it's not the perfect fit, but I, I thought this was an opportunity to talk about this. So delirium tremens happens to about 5% of people who um, are withdrawing from alcohol. The symptoms usually last for about two to three days. They can last for up to a week. And they can start to occur usually within two to four days after your last drink, but can prolong and not show up until 10 days after your last drink. So there's a little bit of a a window to when the symptoms can show up and how long they can last. It's very important that I let you know that DT or delirium tremens is very dangerous 
And if you or someone you know ever experiences the symptoms that I'm about to read after stopping drinking alcohol, you need to go to the emergency room. You need to get like emergency medical care because this is not something that you want to play around with. Symptoms of DT include tremors or shaking hands and feet, chest pain, confusion, deep sleep that lasts for a day or longer, dehydration, excitability or anger, fever, increased startle response, hallucinations, heavy sweating, high blood pressure, nausea or vomiting, nightmares, pale skin, passing out, issues with eye muscle and movement of the eye, rapid heartbeat, seizures, sensitivity to light, sound, and touch, severe hyperactivity, and sleepiness or fatigue. DT can also impact um, your circulation, like your blood circulation, which can lead to issues with body temperature and breathing. This is why it is very necessary to get medical treatment immediately if you notice any of these symptoms because any impact to that circulation system or that nervous system can result in symptoms that, that lead to death. So it's it's very serious. And I, again, I bring that up kind of as just like a public awareness because I'm familiar with this term just because I've worked in areas where substance use is a concern. I don't know how many people know that this is a like common issue and I think often how it's portrayed in like media is that DT is just the shaking it's just the tremors and that not a lot of conversation or attention is given to the other symptoms particularly the this fact that it impacts the circulation system which is what makes it deadly so the reason why I think that Jack could potentially be experiencing DT is that after he has the relapse at the hotel he really starts to see a lot of ghosts and he really starts to kind of lose it. We see him not sleeping anymore. He definitely in the movie is much paler. He's having, like I said, the hallucinations. He's confused. He is aggressive. He's very angry and like little things are setting him off. So we could imagine that maybe Jack had some of this ghost alcohol and went a little too hard, had maybe more than uh, like six or seven drinks at a time and now he's withdrawing again because the ghost alcohol doesn't exist, right? It's he, he gets essentially cut off because it's ghostly alcohol. If this were the case, Jack would need immediate medical attention. Now again, I know it's a little bit of a stretch to push it in here, but I just do want to give kind of like this PSA that if you or someone you know stops drinking alcohol, and within a few days starts to develop several of these symptoms, go to the hospital, call 911, you know, whatever you got to do to get yourself medical treatment. It's very, 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 very dangerous. And again, this is one of the reasons why quitting alcohol cold turkey may not be the best option and is a thing that you would want to bring up with your doctor if you are wanting to stop, particularly if you are what we'd classify as a heavy drinker. For People assigned female at birth, this would be um, eight or more drinks a week. And for people assigned male at birth, it's 15 drinks or more a week would be heavy drinking. So if you are drinking that much uh, a week and have been for quite some time and want to stop drinking, please talk to your doctor before making any decisions because it may be necessary for you to go through a detox process where they give you medication to deal with these symptoms so that you don't go into like, you know, a situation where there's cardiac arrest or you stop breathing. As always, ask your provider because they will be able to tell you better for your situation 
but this is just information to have on hand when you go talk to your provider. So I think that's about all I have about alcohol in The Shining. I'm, I mean, I'm sure I could talk <laughs> for more, for longer about it, but those are the, the two things I want to highlight is that relapse is, you know, quite common, not something to be inherently ashamed of, and that DTs or withdrawal symptoms from alcohol is very serious and something to definitely seek medical attention for. So like I mentioned up at the top with the myopia, alcohol myopia theory, the relationship between alcohol and aggression is, you know, there's a lot of evidence for it. And in The Shining, we see that domestic violence is kind of like, I guess, haunting the the family. It's part of the horror of, of the story. And you can, I think you can interpret it differently, especially depending on the version that you're either reading or watching. I tend to enjoy the book from the perspective of that the Overlook Hotel has a very negative energy that brings out the worst in people and that Jack may not have attempted to kill his family were he <laughs> left alone by the hotel, but that the like ability to be violent toward his family was there and so the hotel, the entity of it was able to like pick at that part of himself and bring it to the forefront. I think there are some people that would interpret it as like Jack always would have gone down this path and that the real horror is that this is something that he was capable of doing and that the hotel, the supernatural aspect of it like doesn't play a role. But I think that the having this idea of like the hotel brought it out is a reminder that environment matters and that the environment that we are in contributes to the like behaviors that we engage in or the way that our relationships go. Of course, most of us are not in haunted hotels filled with generations of ghosts that killed their families. (laughs) But I think that oftentimes the environment that we live in contributes to the cycle of abuse most often by blocking the ability of like victims to escape from the abusive situation. In Wendy and Danny's case, they're physically trapped in a hotel far away from society so that they can't get away from Jack as he becomes violent. I think this is a truly, I guess, terrifying metaphor for what it can be like for people who are experiencing domestic violence. It can feel like you are this isolated from your support system. I think I've talked about this in past episodes, but it bears repeating that often the reason why people do not leave abusive relationships is because there are no other options. It's either I stay here and endure this violence or this abuse, or I end up without a home, without a job, without financial support. Abusers typically try to isolate their victims from the rest of the world, maybe by physically moving them to a place like, you know, a rural area or outside of of where their family lives. This can look like um, isolating you by restricting you from getting a job, uh, cutting off your friends by, you know, repeatedly telling you that you don't like their friends and um, wanting you to, to not hang out with those people anymore restricting other social supports, like maybe preventing you from going to certain religious organizations or community organizations, restricting your ability to do hobbies, maybe by restricting your ability to have money to spend on those hobbies, which 
would bring with it a community of people who are keeping an eye on you. The goal is to isolate someone so that you can continue to perpetrate abuse against them and no one knows that this is happening. Jack just had the opportunity to physically isolate his entire family from school support systems, social support systems, financial support systems. There's not even a way for like Wendy and Danny to get off of this um, mountain because it's snowed in and they only have one car, which in the movie is a Volkswagen, <laughs> like a Volkswagen bug. So it's not driving down the mountain in the snow. So there's no, there's no way for them to physically escape. And then socially, everyone knows that they're on this, this, I keep saying island, <laughs> they're on this mountain um, and that they're supposed to be there for s- several months. No one is expecting to be able to contact them. And I think in both versions, like the phones do go out because of the winter storms. So Wendy and Danny are, you know, physically isolated, but I think it, again, serves as this metaphor for how when you are in, when someone is in a domestic or interpersonal violence situation, the abuser may attempt to isolate you from other people so that the abuse is not found out. And, you know, luckily Danny has supernatural powers, so he's able to call um, the chef de Calloran to come help them, which I think again, furthers this metaphor of like when you're able to reach out and make contact and let someone know that this is going on, that there can be people that come and help you. And Dick Halloran can represent, you know, whatever, social support, community organizations, agencies that specialize in, you know, helping survivors, whatever, whatever you want to put onto that representation. But the the reality is, is that by reaching out, by letting people know what's going on with you, then you can start to get help. And I think that's a powerful message. I think that having this story include this element of someone from outside the relationship or outside the family caring enough to come help is a way to show that there are people that will want to help you if you're stuck in this situation. Dick Halloran had only known Danny for like a day and he came all the way from Florida to Maine to help this little boy out. Think if Danny had been able to psychically contact like his teacher or his friends or his other relatives, people who had known him for longer and therefore probably care about him more, they would have also wanted to help him. It's regardless of like how much connection you have with the person or how much like care is there, right? It's that this is a bad situation and people do want to help you get out of it. So I I don't know if that was intended (laughs) in either King or Kubrick's depiction of this this situation but i think that there is some like hope in this very terrible domestic violence situation that people do care people do want to help you and and, like get you out of this situation like i mentioned earlier jack did already essentially engage in abuse toward danny by dislocating his shoulder and one thing that happens in the book is that jack starts to hear the voice of his father in his head as he's kind of getting pulled into the effect of the hotel. And in the book, it's it's more explicit that Jack is being like possessed by this entity that exists in the hotel. And it's this entity that has caused these like fathers to murder their whole families. So as the entity like takes over or has more influence over Jack, he starts to hear his dad's voice. And we learn that his dad was very abusive to him and his siblings and his mother. Once again, we see the the head of intergenerational trauma rear itself. Uh, I 
talk about this like incessantly, but honestly, this demonstrates the the cycle of abuse and that the fact that Jack was raised by a father who treated him this way shows that this is the way that he was taught to treat children, that children can handle violence, that this is how you discipline children. And he has clearly been trying to not do what his father did to him, to Danny, until he has this moment where he's under the influence and kind of goes back to this like I guess we might call it like innate behavior that's been ingrained in him by his father. Jack clearly doesn't want to be like his father when he's not possessed by the entity. He's not trying to live his life like his father parented him. However, I think this shows that when we are under a great deal of stress, often we fall back to kind of those innate ingrained behaviors that we learned from our families. Jack is stressed out, right? He has already gotten into a situation where he's hurt his son once. He's lost his job and had been unemployed for some time. The family was struggling financially. And he's now trying to, you know, have this job where he's isolated in this hotel, trying to write a book. And he's stressed because of the, the like, writer's block. All of these things are adding so much to the kind of like psychic load that Jack is carrying that he is unable to regulate himself like he could when he's not under the stress. This is not an excuse for Jack engaging in violence toward his family members, but I think it does serve as an explanation for how people can become vulnerable to these types of behaviors toward others. Jack is full of vulnerabilities. He's stressed out. He's so stressed that he's lacking the like psychological capability to soothe himself and choose a different action or a different route of behavior. And I would say that on top of like the stressors going on, he's also trying to white knuckle himself through sobriety. So a lot of his like self-control, his psychological capital is going toward not drinking. So what's left over for dealing with your anger or regulating the way you react to your child? Not a whole lot. I would say probably none is left for Jack. And again, I don't say this as a way to excuse behavior, but as a way for us to better understand why people may engage in things like child abuse, especially in these types of situations where it's like a one-off or more rare instances where it's it's happening but not happening every day and that these are the types of parents that would really benefit from interventions that you know give them a break in that they get financial support they get mental health support they get to learn ways to cope better that uses less psychological capital so that they have leftover ways to cope with dealing with their children or with their partner. I would imagine it's the same situation for dealing with Wendy, that because he saw his father abusing his mother, this is like the ingrained behavior pattern to fall back on toward his wife. And because he doesn't have this like psychological capital left over to regulate himself when Wendy bothers him, he's lashing out in this way. Just for a third time, not excusing the behavior, particularly in real life. I do think that it illustrates how it is possible to intervene in domestic violence situations, the areas to intervene in are in addition to working on the like actual DV behaviors, 
but intervening in these kind of other areas where by providing support for the perpetrator and the family, especially like financially, you reduce the load on the perpetrator so that they can better focus on changing their patterns of behavior so that they don't do this again. And some of you listening to this may be like, well, duh, <laughs> like that makes a lot of sense. But I think often when we hear about like social programs or other types of like public aid programs, there is a resistance to providing that type of support, particularly to people that are perpetrators. I get it. It's a tricky, tricky topic. And social welfare is something that makes people very emotional and can be a very difficult topic. But I just want to provide kind of this other perspective to show that like we do need these social welfare, social safety net programs, because when people have additional economic stressors on top of them, it makes it so much harder to deal with everything else going on in their life. And if we're going to pile all these stressors on top of people and then not give them any resources, I don't think we should be surprised when things like domestic violence goes up. I think there's also a reason why we saw rates of domestic violence go up during the pandemic. Part of it was because people were trapped at home with their abusers. There was less opportunities to escape. I think also part of it was that there were all these stressors on top of these already maybe fragile families, such as people losing their jobs, people losing their access to food programs like free lunches at school, people getting sick and not having access to health care because we've never had access to health care in this country. All of that stuff builds on top of the already maybe fragile or difficult interfamily dynamics that or interpersonal dynamics that lead someone to engage in domestic violence. So that's just I just throw that out there to maybe help some people better understand how domestic violence can happen and how domestic violence interventions can be geared toward supporting families in all of these areas. Of course, I don't say think that the intervention for someone who's like repeatedly violently offending against a loved one should be just give them food stamps. Like there are other things that need to happen, but part of the intervention, particularly in these types of cases where we we have an opportunity to prevent further harm by intervening with this family. One of those interventions would be like, one, don't go <laughs> to the top of a mountain where you're by yourself. And two, giving them additional like financial support while they're working on the, you know, Jack's alcohol use and his anger issues. So I think that's about all that I have for the actual like content of the story. I do want to tack on to this episode a kind of brief discussion of the way that Shelley Duvall was treated during the filming of The Shining because I think that it ties into a conversation that I want to keep having on this podcast about men, mental health, and art and to highlight how portrayals of female characters, essentially representation of women, is important in films and does change the way that a story is perceived. So first off, if you're not familiar with this kind of backstory of how The Shining was made, the, the Kubrick version, it was really, really bad. It, I believe the shoot was like 500 days long, which is like insane for a film shoot. Kubrick has had a reputation of like retaking, retaking, refilming, refilming scenes for endless amounts of time. I think I read somewhere that he wouldn't 
accept any take before the 35th take. So you knew you were going to be shooting a film at least 35 times, and probably way more. And in the filming of The Shining, he really treated Shelley Duvall, who plays Wendy, the wife, he really treated her quite terribly. And I have some examples here from this article on Slash Film that I was reading. Here's just a few of the things that he, that Kubrick did to Shelley Duvall during the filming of the movie. So one is that the scene where um, she's holding a baseball bat and Jack Nicholson is like coming after her. Essentially, this kind of starts off when he's like, I'm going to kill everyone. That He had them retake that, sh- that um, take 127 times. She said that after the constant takes of that, her hands were like raw from gripping the bat. She, her eyes were like so, so swollen from crying that she could barely open her eyes. Her voice was hoarse from like screaming and she was like completely dehydrated after leaving the set. I don't think it needed 127 takes. I think they probably could have gotten it a lot earlier. And it was just this like over and over reshooting of it contributed to her like physical pain, physical pain for Shelley Duvall. In the door scene where Jack Nicholson chops down the door and says, here's Johnny, they did that take, I think, 60 times. He cut up 60 doors. And um, this scene was mostly improvised, so Shelley Duvall did not know what was coming and did not know that Jack Nicholson would be chopping down a door. So that means the reactions we see from her in the film are, are her own reactions are not necessarily acting. And I think we can all stop and imagine that if uh, one of our coworkers just started banging down a door at work, we would probably have a pretty bad reaction to that. Um, a lot of her lines were cut. So Shelley Duvall's character actually had a lot more dialogue in the first version of the script that Kubrick cut out. He kept her isolated and would make her wait for a very long amount of time before doing her scene. So she never quite knew when she was going to be called up to act or not. So she was constantly kept like on edge. He told the crew to not sympathize with her. He decided to never give her any compliments on her work and criticized every choice she made for the character. He even asked the crew to ignore her and to disregard anything that she asked for. This treatment was only for Shelley Duvall. Jack Nicholson was not treated this way. And she has done interviews since where she has said that Jack Nicholson said to her, like, I don't know how you're getting through this. Like, he recognized that it was very bad from from the outside. And this was part of, like, Kubrick's style, his, like, doing takes over and over again. He was famously known to be, like, pretty hard on actors. But it does seem from what I've read and from what I've heard from people talking about this is that he was unnecessarily hard on Shelley Duvall more so than on any other actors and on any other projects that he had done. There was something about her that he was just really going after and kept going after her essentially for 500 days. And I think that Kubrick's actions often get overlooked. I know he's dead, so we're not holding him accountable. But I think they often get overlooked or not talked about in the context of this film and other of his films because he was seen as like a genius, a fantastic filmmaker. Because he's a genius, he's a tortured genius, he does what he has to do to get the art out of the actors. And I think this is very similar to the point that I made in my Machine Gun Kelly episode which is that like um, we actually don't need you to be a torture genius <laughs> to make good art. And I don't know, I'm not going to talk about like Stanley Kubrick's background. I don't know much about him. 
his like personal life. I don't know if he had a trauma history, if he had mental health struggles. I don't know what was going on with him. But I do know that there is little excuse for treating someone this way, the way that he treated Shelley Duvall, and I think more broadly the way that he treated actors and crew in general. There's little to no excuse for that if the end product is just a a movie that you're making that's going to be well-received. I think that there are many ways to get people to be cooperative with you, to understand your vision, to communicate effectively in the workplace that don't require abusive language and behavior. And I think that very talented people, particularly those that present as masculine, get a pass from society for this behavior because it's worth it for the talent or it's worth it for the art. And I would really like to see, I think this conversation is starting to shift, but I would like to see this conversation shift and say that how can we ensure that great art is created, not at the detriment of people's psychological health, but rather through the use of effective communication and like a respectful workplace. Because when we elevate examples like Kubrick up as like, this is, you know, the only way to make film or this is the best way to get results, you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. I think that gives people coming up in that particular field a way to say like, well, I got to do what it takes to make it to the top. If this is what it takes to make good art, then that's what I have to do. I think this happens in other fields as well, right? I think that if we're talking about in like more corporate or business fields, people think that you have to exploit labor (laughs) to make it to the top. You have to be like Jeff Bezos and, you know, have essentially a business plan that requires immense turnover of workers because you don't care about their well-being or, you know, providing them with healthcare or even a basic sense of dignity. And that We can hold up examples of people that are compassionate and empowering in an effective way and still get good art, still get profitable, profitable companies, still get, you know, success. And if we were to hold up those examples, that might shift the way in which people enter into a field and reduce the incidences of people engaging in like abusive practices at the expense of creating good art or making it to the top. And I think one of the ways in which Kubrick's art suffered by the fact that he treated Shelley Duvall this way is that Shelley Duvall's character or her portrayal of Wendy is very far away from how Wendy was portrayed in the original script and how she's portrayed in the book. The original script and the book version of Wendy are that she is quite confident. She has her own identity outside of the family. She understands that what Jack did was wrong and is wanting to get the family like back on track and that she's not terrified of him for most of the story until like the very end when he's fully possessed. Whereas in the movie version, Wendy is like terrified of her own shadow. She is constantly trembling. She's she cries very easily. She has little to say because they cut most of her a lot of her lines out. She is essentially there to be a victim, to have violence done to her and to have no other identity other to than to be a victim and to be a suffering mother. And this is my second point that, you know, representations of women or representations of people in general in films matter. And so to portray Wendy in this way as essentially a woman who's just constantly in a trauma response reduces our ability to have a cultural concept of what it's like to be a person with a partner who is, you know, violent or aggressive. And that 
it makes it seem like inherently you have to be like a weak-willed person to be in a relationship with someone who has issues with with violence or aggression. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that is the norm. I think that there are lots of different factors that lead to the same endpoint and that Wendy as a character has a lot to offer, um, especially in the way of portraying examples of how someone might protect their child, try to protect themselves, and balance the very complicated decision of staying with a partner that you've built a life with and wrestling with their decisions that are harming you or your child. And instead, we aren't really seeing Wendy. We're seeing Shelley Duvall being tortured on set for 500 days and going through quite a few parallels of the stuff that I talked about before of being isolated, not having social relationships, being trapped on this set because they did actually film in, I think they filmed in Maine, the hotel that it's based on is in Colorado, but they filmed in a very isolated place. So she's isolated and then being berated and terrified every day because she's not getting to be a part of the production in the same way. And while it's not the same as domestic violence because she's not in a relationship with Stanley Kubrick, I think this is an example of like workplace harassment and workplace violence and abuse by higher ups or bosses that is unfortunately a relatable experience doesn't make it right just because the outcome of this work is a piece of art and not you know like a factory or a a, like corporate workplace so i think tying those two parts together i think kubrick's art did suffer from him acting this way that we have a less dynamic and complex view of this character of wendy because all we get to see is a woman tortured on screen and unable to portray all of the different parts of her identity aside from being a long-suffering mother or wife. And Stephen King has even said that this is one of the reasons he doesn't like the film is because the portrayal of Wendy is not the woman that he wrote about. His quote that I found in this article was, she's basically just there to scream and be stupid. And by Kubrick engaging in these practices against Shelley Duvall has reduced her character to someone that's just like screaming and crying the whole time. Now, that's not to like say that Shelley Duvall's reactions were not valid. I think this is exactly how someone (laughs) could react in the face of this intensive abuse and doesn't mean that she wasn't working her absolute butt off to make this movie good. I think that she was doing everything that she could to do her job and do her job well. There are just some situations where it doesn't matter how much you want to be doing a good job if you're being treated this way, it's it's a barrier to you doing your job or doing doing what your your plan is for the situation. So yeah, your art suffers when you are a bad person. <laughs> you don't get to just bully people and then say that it's art and walk away from it without any responsibility. Again, I know Kubrick is dead and this like doesn't doesn't really matter for him individually, but I think in this like larger conversation that I want to keep having about the idea of like a tortured genius or a tortured artist, this is another example of your art does not require either an untreated mental illness or a unreckoned with pattern of behavior that harms other people. Imagine what The Shining could have been like if Shelley Duvall was given the opportunity to actually act and actually be the role of Wendy as she is in the book. A complicated woman who in the book is jealous that Danny loves his father and feels that they're too close and is wrestling with 
her jealousy around that relationship, all while wrestling with the fact that her husband hurt her son, which is a complicated position to be in and would have benefited the movie for us to see how that plays out and see how she made decisions to stand up against her husband at certain at certain times. Yeah, I think the art suffered for it. I mean, I liked the movie. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent an hour talking about it. Um, but I think that it's not as cracked up to what it could have been because of how the actress was treated. And I think that also changes the dynamic of the whole crew and the whole cast of having this one person be like constantly bullied. Who do you align with? Right? Do you defend this person? Do you align with your boss? Because if you don't align with him, he won't pay you anymore. Like it puts everyone in a, in a bad position. And I think the overall piece of art suffers for it or the overall product suffers for it. So yeah. And I didn't want to do an episode about The Shining without acknowledging the ways in which Shelley Duvall was horribly treated. I think that it is a narrative that needs to be remembered when discussing The Shining and Kubrick films in general, that this is the way that he treated people. And this is the way that he treated this woman particularly. And it it devastated her. And I think ruined her life in a way that can't be recovered from and this is just from like what what she has talked about in interviews i know it's a bummer note to end on but i think it's a necessary conversation and i wanted to you know give it a little bit of a platform on this little platform that i have so with that i hope that you enjoyed this episode and i hope that you are ready for our final spooky episode next week Uh, Thank you for listening all the way through and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.